Thanks, Jeff. Um, I'm not really sure what passage to tell you to open up to today because we're going to actually look at a few. Um, so maybe just have your Bible, just you work out what you want to look at um, and anything that we will change to you'll be seeing on the screen anyway. Uh, let, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we come to this uh, final word in, in Jeremiah, we pray that you would speak to us as you ha always have. We pray that as we come to your powerful word, you would um, cut us to the heart with it, that you would remind us of the wonderful goodness that you have shown for us in Jesus and that you would move in our hearts, our wills, um, our deliberations, that we might um, live out what it means to be followers of our great King Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems like a lot longer than this, but it was just three years ago this week um, that I finished up a tour I had in Israel uh, in the lead up to a conference. It was a fantastic tour. Um, uh, there was a, a large group of us that went off in it and, and it was only a week long or so or seven or eight days, but there was so much that was packed into it. And I don't know if you've ever been on a group tour or whether you've perhaps gone on a mission trip or maybe you've even done something with your workplace where you've, you've had to go away for a while or, or on a field trip when you're studying. But like often when you finish up a journey, the last night of the trip, you know what I'm talking about? The last night of the trip, it's a great occasion where you sit down and you go chat, catch up with the people that you were sitting there with and, and you reflect upon what, what's been. All right. Um, now, we had a lovely uh, catch-up in a walled garden of a hotel uh, in, in near the old city in Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and our tour group, of some of them are in the background there, were all people that we sort of would chat with. You have a meal and a get-together and where you reflect on what's, what's been. You debrief the challenges. You share the highlights. Uh, you want to consolidate your thoughts and memories and you want to do it while you're still there because you know that you're going to be back soon and then you'll, you'll forget and your mind will move on to other things. Well, we're finishing a big journey today. We're finishing a big journey in the book of Jeremiah. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do some reflection on it and what that journey has been like. We're going to do that especially a little later. But first, we need to reach our final destination where the hotel is, in a sense, um, to begin with. We're going to have a look at the last chapter of Jeremiah. And it's a chapter that provokes a reasonable question when you read it, especially if you remember last week. And that is, why is it there in the first place? Why is it actually in the Bible? After all, chapter 1 concluded by telling us that the words of Jeremiah end here. And chapter 2 is mainly lifted word for word out of 2 Kings 24 and 25 anyway. And so, so why do we get a 52 in Jeremiah? What does it do for the book? And, and the short answer is that it brings closure. By detailing the events of Zedekiah's reign, it kind of signs away Jeremiah's message of judgment, and yet at the same time what it's going to do is reinforce that it's all is not over and there is indeed a glimmer of hope. So when Jeremiah was commissioned by God, back in chapter 1, this is what God said to him. He said, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. That's what God commissioned Jeremiah to do. Well, in this final chapter, we see the culmination of these words. First of all, we see the culmination of his commission, the summary of it, in a sense, to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and to overthrow. 
And so if you have a look in chapters, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 52, Zedekiah's reign is brutally summed up this way. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. And it was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah, and in the end he thrust them from his presence. And the story of that expulsion, of being spat out, spat out from the land, is, is what is laid out starkly in the verses that follow. Zedekiah, we're told, rebels against Babylon, and then it's almost like immediately, although it was after years, but immediately he finds himself um, and Jerusalem surrounded by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. And his destruction then comes about quickly. So if you're looking there, verses 6 to 11 takes us to Zedekiah's brutal end as he is uprooted and overthrown. Verses 12 to 16, it's Jerusalem's turn. A month after the walls are breached, because once the army's escaped and Zedekiah's been captured, there's no rush, um, Nebuchadnezzar sends in his commander to make an example of Jerusalem. And it's, if you read it, it's a systematic tearing down and destroying of all that was once beautiful about the place. Then in verses 17 to 23, it's the temple's turn. Before it was burned down, it was systematically looted of everything of value and broken up. And if you read that description, it's highly detailed, almost unnecessarily so. It's, it's as each item is pulled apart. It's like a slow and steady unmaking of the glorious house of God, a reversal of its building. And then in verses 24 to 27, the priests and officials are deported and executed just as Jeremiah said would happen. His was a message to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow. And Jeremiah 52 tells us that's exactly what happened. But the book ends with the planting of seeds. First of all, you get the remnant there. The people aren't wiped out. Just as Jeremiah said they would be, they're taken into exile. Now, if you were to look at the numbers there, that are entered into the promised land after the exodus, if you go back in the Bible and have a look at how many people went in, what goes out is a tiny, tiny fraction of that number. But those taken into exile are also, though, the seed of a promise. They may only be a few thousand, but they are a few thousand. And then we get a fascinating final word. A reminder that the line of David has not ended. A number of years into the period of his exile, long-forgotten Jehoiachin, who hardly even writes a mention in the whole book of Jeremiah, wicked Jehoiakim's wicked son, is released after nearly 40 years spent languishing in a prison. Nebuchadnezzar's son, for some reason, looks with favour upon Jehoiachin, and then seats him with honour, lifts up his face, is the description, seats him with honour at the king's table. And so at the end, you get in the midst of the devastation of conquest and exile, the seeds of promise are left there, ready to bud. Jeremiah's message of judgment's been fulfilled, and so for those who are in exile, who are the ones who were reading the book of Jeremiah, this ending says it gives hope that maybe the message of restoration will come to fulfilment too. And then the book ends. So that's the final message of the final chapter 
of the longest book in the Bible. It's been a long word, it's been a hard word, it's been a full word. And so I thought for what we do for the rest of this talk, would we do what you do at the end of a big journey? And we'll sit there and we'll think about it. We'll do some reflecting on where God's hard word for Jeremiah leads the followers of Jesus, you and me. So here are seven things that our journey through Jeremiah has led me to ponder. First is the patience of God. Especially after today's passage, our attention can quickly be drawn to how decisively God's judgment falls upon Judah. But we can easily forget the refrains that we read earlier in the book. Refrains that remind us again and again and again of God's patience. Do you know that the phrase, again and again, turns up 11 times in the book of Jeremiah and each time it emphasises just how often God was warning his people through his prophets to turn from their sin and to do what is right. And this long-suffering patience of God wasn't a new thing, as if Israel had only just recently started to try his patience. Um, So look at chapter 7, verse 24. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets, but they did not listen to me or pay attention. God's patience seems to only be matched by the people's stubbornness. How long are you prepared to put up with someone treating you badly? A week? A month? A year? Maybe a couple of decades? How many times would you warn someone before you might act? Once? Twice? Three strikes and you're out? God put up with more than 600 years of disobedience in the land and 600 years of repeated warnings before he exiled his people from it. Hardly the eager, vengeful God of or evil, um, vengeful God of caricature. So next time someone makes a quip, about the unloving God of the Old Testament and judgment-happy God of the Old Testament, you might want to point that out. 600 years and see how good they measure up against that for patience. Now, God in the book of Jeremiah is the God you read in the rest of the Bible, one who is slow to anger. He's always been slow to anger and his patience is profound. And so when you think about that as a Christian, how blessed are we to have a God like that? Let me ask you, do you actually thank God for his patience with you? You know, we benefit from God's patience every day and we often don't even realise it. I mean, just think of what each of our lifetime sin tallies would add up to. Tallies that we add to every single day. Each sin poking at God's righteousness like a defiant child at some points or despoiling his holiness like a clumsy waiter tripping up all the time and messing things up. But he waits, doesn't he? 
and he holds back and he forgives. And astoundingly, he actually pays for the mistakes we make. If you're a believer, think about this. God waited and waited and waited, enduring the daily provocation of your sin until he helped you to come to know Jesus Christ and then took that sin away from you. And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, your life is a testament to God's patience with you. And my encouragement to you is don't keep taking that patience for granted. Turn from your sin now and put your trust in Jesus. And for those of us who do follow Jesus, the message from Jesus is now also, listen up, isn't it? If if what we've read in Jeremiah is God's patiently enduring them, ignoring him, maybe that we who know Jesus should go, we need to pay attention to him, don't we? We need to listen up. We need to not be in Israel, testing God's patience by turning a deaf ear to what your God has spoken and commanded. No, let that not be us. Listen to the word, reflect upon it and put it into practice. And not least, you can do that by being patient, like your God is, with the people around you, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It should be no surprise to us that patience is a fruit of the Spirit because God is patient and so should his people be. What God is like with us, we should be with others. Well, this very patience of God also leads us to acknowledge the justice of God's judgment, doesn't it? Haven't we seen that in Jeremiah? Jeremiah shows us that God's judgment isn't hasty and it's not rushed and it comes with ample warning. Nor is his judgment unreasonable, instead it's well-earned. You know, there is a repeated refrain that turns up multiple times in the earlier chapters of Jeremiah after God makes his case against his rebellious, wicked and idolatrous people. And and it's like this, um, chapter 5, verse 29, "'Should I not punish them for this?' declares the Lord. Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? And of course, the rhetorical nature of that question implies that the answer is an obvious yes. The same is true as we saw last week of God's judgment against the arrogance, the sins, um, the violence, the greed of the nations around them as well. At every point through Jeremiah, you're going, well, they deserve this. It's not like God is being unreasonable. We've seen also that God's judgment is proportional it's consistent, it's typically punishing sins in kind, returning them back onto people in a sense, and yet amazingly, how often have we seen that judgment tempered by his mercy? And we've seen that, this, that his judgment doesn't play favourites either. What he judges his people for, he judges his nations for. What he's going to judge the nations for, he judges his people for. And the people, the the general inhabitants, they're not innocently judged just because their leaders were bad or their ancestors were. They're judged because their sins are there too. It's totally fair. And we've seen that God's judgment is good and we've seen that it's glorious. It's actually, Jeremiah shows that it is God using his power to act on behalf of what is right. It is his avenging of crimes against the weak. It's his rebuke of the greedy and the corrupt and the violent. It's God bearing witness to truth in the face of people's lies and deceptions. It reminds us that no one's going to get away with anything 
No one is going to be shielded by their wealth or by their positions of power and privilege. No one will be protected by the cover of darkness or secrecy or a clever tongue. And that is good. That is really good. If what is good matters, if what is right matters, then judgment matters. And God will do it. So here's one reflection from teaching a nine-week series on a book whose main message revolves around judgment. Don't hide God's judgment from your witness to one another and the world. It can be tempting to. Many of us do it, many churches do it, but we mustn't. It's actually a good and glorious thing. It can actually strengthen the heart in a world that has always been and continues to be so filled with oppression and judgment, violence and cruelty. It is a great message to say to people that vindication is coming, that there is a just God behind this universe. There is a God who cares and who sees what's going on and will act. That's not a great message that you hide away. You tell people that. It's not a message to be embarrassed about. But the truth of God's glorious judgment also must drive us to speak of the cross, mustn't it, in our witness. For judgment will be applied evenly and fairly and that it means it'll be applied to each one of us without exception. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. We need justice But because we will get it, we also need mercy. That takes me to the third reflection that really needs to hit home from looking at Jeremiah. Jeremiah has been called the weeping prophet. But as we saw last week in chapter 48, it's not just Jeremiah who weeps at the consequences of sin. God himself does. Even the rhetorical questions we looked at Um, to um, speak of, of God's grief and pain at the wickedness of humanity and the need for judgment. Should I not do this? This is this needs to be acted upon. This is so tragic. And of course, with sin comes great suffering. It comes when we're sinned against. You know what that's like. As Jeremiah certainly knew what it was like to be sinned against but also when we sin ourselves and when we experience the consequences of a world that is just corrupted by it. Sin is that bad and it is that sad. And I do it. And so do you. And that is why a right response to sin in ourselves and others is to grieve it, to regret it, to hate it, to be ashamed of it, to long to be rid of it and wish that it would be no more. The book of Lamentations was written by Jeremiah following the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and it is one big song of sadness that must be sung and an outlet for the deep grief that so often accompanies the human condition and the experience of guilt, loss and shame. 
It also explores the reality of what it is like to know that God is against you because of your sin. That sin makes us enemies with God. It looks such things in the eye. And instead of denying them or minimalizing them, as so often our society seeks to do, it actually gives full acknowledgement to the reality of these because this is the experience of life. This is reality. Um, so from verse 14 of chapter 1 in Lamentations, my sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands they were woven together. They have been hung on my neck and the Lord has sapped my strength. He has given me into the hand, into the hands of those I cannot withstand. Friends, we mustn't go through a nine-week series on the wrongness and dire consequences of sin without reflecting upon the reality of our own sin and its direness, right? It must cause us to own the responsibility for our sin as a whole and own responsibility for its expressions that are particular to us as well, wrongs I commit, good things I fail to do, ways I fail to love and honour God, ways I fail to love and honour people and not just point the finger at ancient Israel or Judah or the nations. And part of owning it is recognising that facing such hard truths and feeling the weight of them is actually often what is most healthy for us, what's most needed for us to actually grow, seek change and indeed find our hope in God. See, that was Jeremiah's reflection in the middle of Lamentations that Jeff read for us before. Um, from verse 22, because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion and therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. Remember, this is set in the middle of five chapters of lamenting sin and its consequences and grieving them himself. And he says, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. See what he's doing? He's saying, sit in this. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him and let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. By actually sitting in it and accepting its reality, it leads Jeremiah and it should lead us to go, I, want, I need what you can bring, God. Jeremiah leads us to lament for our sin and lamenting our sin is important. Because it's what helps us to reflect on the wonder of God's grace and then turn to him and not for our, to ourselves for hope. You see, that was Israel's hope. And Jeremiah kept saying it. He kept saying, Israel, this is where your sins have gotten you. But because of who God is, you'll never be abandoned. You are my people and I am your God. Despite their rebellion, God's love for his people, Jeremiah reminds us, never ceases. Remember the great hope expressed through chapters 30 to 33? 
And the cause for it is summarised neatly in chapter 31, verses 3 and 4. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I will build you up again and you, virgin Israel, will be rebuilt. God looked upon them with love and favour as a parent upon a wayward child. Their sins were appalling. Their judgment was earned a thousand times over. Their hope wasn't in their worthiness. It could never be. But actually in the incredible grace of the God who would always love them. So with no actions on their part to deserve it, God preserves, as we've read today, a remnant. He protects them in exile and he promises their return and renewal to something infinitely greater under a new king and a new and lasting covenant. See, in every sense, it is wonderful, right? So it's a wonder that God would do this to such an unworthy people, but it's a wonder that the, great, the greatness of the God whose grace is so boundless. It points to the reality that we Christians know even more powerfully than Jeremiah did. As Christians, we're drawn to the great reality of God's unmerited favour to us in Jesus, the kind that we read about in Ephesians 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Hear that phrase again, the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. If, if grace to the wayward people of Judah was something to wonder at, how much more wonderful is the extent of his kindness to us that we see in Jesus. As Christians, you know, we're regularly confronted by our failings. Because of grace, let me say this to you, don't let them crush you. Don't let your failings crush you. That's why it's safe, can I say, to sit in them for a bit because you've got a God like this to turn to. All right, don't let them crush you. Don't let the accuser's voice Drown out the truth that you're loved by God and nothing can separate you from it. God knows that we couldn't save ourselves. He knows our weaknesses and so in his kindness he's done it all for us in Jesus. So as Jeremiah and Jesus call you to reflect on God's grace, swap your pride for faith, your self-reliance, for humble and hopeful prayer and seek God's strength even as you lament your frailties knowing that his grace is sufficient for you. And that leads me to the fifth reflection that struck me from the book of Jeremiah and I hope it struck you and that is the magnitude of forgiveness. And to some extent, this is the culmination of the first four reflections. Now, spending a whole term sitting in 52 chapters that detail how bad human sin is and its consequences, really, 
from a multitude of different angles. It really hits home how absolutely mind-bogglingly huge a thing forgiveness really is. I mean, don't you think? We know from reading Jeremiah and from the punishment that resulted, how angry God rightly was at all of this sin. And yet, what do we read in chapter 31, verse 34? For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Chapter 33, verse 8, I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Chapter 50, verse 20, in those days at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for Israel's guilt. There'll be none. And for the sins of Judah, but none will be found. For I will forgive the remnant that I spare. So for Israel and Judah in the land, that's 600 plus years of rebellion that God has promised to forgive. More than that, eliminate. None will be found. That's a lot to forgive. That's a lot of offence to forget. You know, we've already acknowledged that we are sinners, just like they were, and so has everyone else been in the entire history of forgiven people since the beginning of time. You know, Revelation chapter 7 pictures a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language and they're standing before the throne of God and before Jesus, the Lamb, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And they're described by John who sees this vision as wearing white robes. And so when asked what that means, the answer is given that these are those whose robes have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus. And and the symbolism is quite powerful, isn't it? In other words, every single individual in that great countless multitude from every language and people group know the absolutely complete sin-wiping forgiveness that Jesus achieved for every one of them on the cross. You think the testimony to the sin of Judah and the nations in Jeremiah, do you think that's been long? It's a succinct summary compared to the true volume of their sin. And so imagine a book for every single member of that multitude before the throne of God. And imagine that book detailing every single one of their sins. Detailing not just that, every consequence that those sins led to. Every person hurt, every person perhaps corrupted as a result of every single occurrence. That's giving you more of a window into what sins really isn't doing. Billions of volumes of millions of pages of offence upon offence, piling up and up, books all over the place. Yours is there, and so is mine, and so is Jeremiah's, and Eved Melech, and Barak, and the thief who died on the cross beside Jesus. 
Think of the wrath that deserves to be poured out at that testimony. And then in a moment, every volume of it is taken away and utterly destroyed. Wiped out, obliterated. And they're replaced by just one book, the Lamb's Book of Life, and all it contains is names. Because our sin, all of it, is washed away, cleaned off, eliminated, forgiven, nothing to be found. Because God the Son, the perfect, spotless, sacrificial Lamb, died in our place on the cross. He paid for it all. And so when we stand before the throne of God, we can actually sing his praises and not tremble in terror. And it's the sheer magnitude of this forgiveness that helps us with our sixth reflection. You know, peace, as a word, turns up a fair few times in Jeremiah. But do you know what? For the first 30 chapters, every single time that it's mentioned, it's either a promise from a false prophet that Jeremiah is denying, or it's a longing for a peace that will not be experienced. But then after chapter 30, after judgment falls on the false prophets, it's as if a switch gets flicked. Every reference to peace from 30 verse 10 onwards is a promise like this one. Jacob will again have peace and security and no one will make him afraid. God's people will again know peace. 600 years after Jeremiah... Jehoiachin's, you know, the one who was left behind, the one who stayed in Babylon and actually eventually just got out of prison, his great descendant, Jesus, is born. And when he was born, what did the angels cry out? Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favour rests. And as we read in Luke chapter 23, just after Jesus promises to that thief that the, that day he would join him in paradise as Jesus dies his atoning death and the darkness falls upon the land to signal what's going on here, the temple curtain is torn in two. To say that that moment when he took it all, the curtain disappears and God and his people are once again reconciled. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. This grace in which we now stand. Friends, Jeremiah has been a hard word, but it draws us to reflect on how wonderful our Saviour is. Because of the judgment that fell on him, it's never going to fall on us. So whatever else life might throw at us, whatever else are worries or concerns, we have peace with God. That is secure. And that's one that we're going to enjoy forever. Because God is our God and we are his people. And we can now draw on that relationship and the peace that comes with it, even now as we live in this challenging world. And that's exactly what Paul says in Philippians 4. Don't be anxious about anything, 
But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so the final reflection really is about the Word, and it kind of should be. Because that's what the book of Jeremiah is about. Jeremiah shows us that God's word is indeed, as Hebrews would put it, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the word that promises judgment upon sin and carries it out. It's a word that promises grace, forgiveness and peace to the repentant who trust in Jesus. And it's a word that always delivers. And so as Christians, it should lead us to the trust, to trust and to speak the powerful word of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And we're going to sing in about one minute. But I might encourage you to stop, to reflect, to think what especially you need to take home and reflect upon from Jeremiah and maybe spend um, just 10, 15 seconds in some quiet prayer.